Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Zwade Marshall. We discuss the strategies he's using right now to help grow his referral network and growing his pain practice, as well as his experience doing expert witnessing work in opioid cases, and how the economics of these arrangements work, if you've ever wondered. And you'll definitely want to stay tuned to the end when he discusses his new business that is a peer-to-peer lending network for physicians only to help provide liquidity in times of need. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 33 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Zwade Marshall. Zwade is double board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. He's an innovator. He's an entrepreneur. Right now, he's working hard to solve problems not only for his patients, but also for young physicians. So I couldn't be more pleased to have him here. Welcome, Zwade. Justin, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Um, it's a privilege to be here. I've become a fan of your podcast uh, lately. I've I, I heard uh, Dr. Tim Deere on here not so long ago, and That's then right. I listened to the um, the episode about whole life insurance as well. Yes. I was, that was uh, it's 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 pretty top of mind. Uh, so it's 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 a I hear a lot about that. That's right. That's one of those ep- one of those episodes that I wish was not as applicable as it unfortunately is. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me. As you said, I am, uh, I'm, I'm currently uh, the co-founder um, uh, for Doc to Doc Lending. I'm an anesthesiologist, as you said, and interventional pain management specialist. I'm the director of outcomes for Alliance Spine and Pain uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and so uh, in that capacity, I, I help to recruit and interview new doctors. And so I've got some tips for how to kind of navigate the private practice um, interview trail, uh, awesome. but then also um, uh, I kind of look at the opioid prescribing patterns for the practice and and try to put some thoughtful policy around that part of things as well. Um, prior to being at Alliance, I was in Boston at Harvard for my residency and fellowship, and before then I was in Atlanta at Emory for my medical school, uh, business school, and college. So, uh, so I'm I'm an I'm an hemorrhoid, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it feels as painful as the homonym hemorrhoid because uh, I've got the student loan debt to show for it as well. There you go. Well, yeah. uh, I'm I'm real. There's so much here. I'm really excited to talk to you about each of these topics. Let's start just a little bit. Tell us about yourself and your story, and what made you want to be a doctor, and then what inclined you also to be a, a physician entrepreneur. Sure. So I think I have one of those fairly typical immigrant stories. Um, I moved to the U.S. with my mom and sister uh, uh, when I was 16 years old. Uh, we came from uh, Guyana. And usually when people say, where are you from? And I tell them Guyana, I have to kind of tell them that it's in South America, not Africa. And I have to then add that um, it was a British colony. That's why I speak English so well. Um, but it's, it's, it's northern South America, uh, more Caribbean in culture than anything else. Um, and... Uh, and I think being from Guyana, I think it, it kind of motivates uh, your, your ability to aspire uh, to achieve, right? My mom was a seamstress and, and worked to provide for my sister and me. And she was a tiger mom that really valued educational accomplishment. And so I was a pleaser child and wanted to keep her happy. Um, and I was fiercely competitive, too. And I think that also helped uh, to kind of get me um, to where I am now. But why medicine? Um, uh, I'm from one of those cultures in which... You know, if, if you do well in school, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, right? But, um, but I was, um, I interacted with healthcare a lot. I had uh, really severe childhood asthma um, and 
I think that when you struggle to breathe uh, and you're in the third world and, you, and, and folks actually die from asthma where I'm from, I can still remember the fear in my mother's face every time uh, I would struggle to draw a breath. Uh, and I remember the relief in her face and how I felt when our family doctor came over to give me a breathing treatment. And so you kind of learn quite a bit about uh, the healing nature of medicine, the empathy that, that it invokes uh, in, 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 in the practitioner, but also the patients. Um, and you kind of get a better understanding of what it's like to allay fear in people uh, as, a, as a healthcare practitioner. And so um, my, that family doctor is, I call him Uncle Clarence. He's not really my uncle, but I, I, I saw him so many times over the mm. course of my childhood that uh, he's, he's, he's certainly family for, to, to me now. Um, and he was like my initial inspiration to, to, to getting to a, a healing profession, so to speak. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. That really hits close to home. So I'm sure. Are you asthmatic as well? Uh, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. But just seeing the, the intimate impact that a physician had in your life very early on, uh, it's that that makes perfect sense. That it's kind of what drew you to the field. Yeah. It, and, and, and as you, you know, like now that I'm a doctor, I think I, I can't forget how impactful that interaction was. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we're really busy uh, as professionals and it's hard to kind of find time to reply to that email or, or enter the phone when um, someone reaches out and asks for advice or, or for, for, for tips along the way. And, and, and just the simplest interaction can be so meaningful and impactful for an aspiring doctor um, that uh, uh, I, I'm not great at it, but I think about it enough to like hit reply uh, and answer the phone when I get those calls sometimes. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from being your uh, a very um, competitive, you know, young man to moving to med school and eventually to an MBA. Sure. Um, so I entered medical school in 2006, uh, and um, I was at the probably the most formative time of the uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, and I knew that I did not understand healthcare economics well enough. Uh, and with all the debate and, and discussion around uh, consolidation in healthcare, um, peer systems, uh, accessibility for patients, and, 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 and the plethora of nuanced challenges that comes with this healthcare organism, um, I wanted to get some more, um, some more formal training around it. And so I opted to do the MD-MBA program. It wasn't a formal program at Emory. It was, uh, I took a year off and went to business school and then came back to med school after that. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you that it was probably the most transformational educational experience that I, that I had in the 14 years of schooling that I've had to date. Wow. Um, it, it just changed the lens through which I saw the world. It changed the kind of things I read in my free time. It changed the podcast that I listen to now. Um, it, it helped me create my personal narrative and I can better articulate why I wanted to be a doctor, why I want to aspire to do whatever it is that I'm doing because of that kind of thoughtful leadership that, that my B school professors kind of trained me to articulate. So you learn how to do an elevator pitch and kind of just organize your thoughts about your career, your skills, your weaknesses, and how to mitigate those weaknesses as best as you can. So it's, I think if anyone's thinking about it from the, forget about the economics, because there's, there's the opportunity cost of income. If you take time off from med school to go to business school, et cetera, but in terms of just the, the purely pedagogical content hmm. of sitting in a business school classroom, it's unlike anything we do in medicine. The hierarchy of being on the wards and you're, you're in the short coat and then there's 15 <laughs> tiers 
of, uh, of, of folks that are above you. In business school, it's uh, you're the client. Like that, that school's representing a brand mm. that you have to then graduate and represent them well. And so they're always very um, cognizant of the fact that there's something that you're there to get out of that educational experience. Uh, and and uh, I tell you, Goisweta at Emory, uh, they were very good about making sure I got what I needed to get out of it. That's excellent. Are there, as you look back at your biz school experience, are there any transformational, either like a class or a book or a principle that you go back to and you think, I use this all the time and this is something that, if there was like one thing that I could commend to other physicians, like get this this principle on lockdown? Sure. I think um, organizational management and, and change management, uh, Rick Gilkey was my professor. He wrote me a, a recommendation letter off to, to medical school, to um, residency, I'm sorry. It's the kind of course that helps you to appreciate that soft skills become hard skills at some point in time, where um, I became more in tune with the fact that I'm an actual true introvert. I can pretend uh, in, in, in short bursts with people that I like, but it, I'm discharged whenever I, uh, I, I interact for more than maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And so knowing that it, I, I can manage, you know, how I, how I handle meetings and, and how I market now for my practice. I have to do lots of dinners every week with referring physicians. And so I, I can, I've learned tricks to kind of mitigate my, my truly introverted nature. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. I, so I'm coming at this obviously from the other side. So I look at medicine as somebody who came up through the business channel and I'm, I'm fascinated always by the, just understanding economic relationships and the, the phrase that I go back to is follow the money. Like if you want to understand the incentive of a sure. person or an institution sure. or a system, like how do they get paid? How do they make more? That's what they're being incented, incentivized to do. And that principle alone for me, I find is like, if I come into a sort of a situation where I don't understand kind of what's going on, it's like, how, how are the economic exchanges, economic dynamics happening here? And I find that principle similarly to be very important for young physicians. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, we don't discuss economics and medicine enough because there's, you know, you worry about the perverse incentives, right? Of, yeah. of doctors behaving badly because of a financial motivation. I think that on the, on the other side of it is the commoditization of, of medicine where right. we become spokes in a wheel right. uh, and there's, there's no reward for productivity and for, for, um, for, for innovation, uh, so to speak. And so there's this delicate balance, but uh, having the conversation around incentives and, and how are doctors compensated, how are health systems compensated, how do insurers make money and the payers? I think it's 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 this very complex dynamic that's interwoven. Uh, and if you understand it, you uh you tend to come out of it better. If you don't, you're in the you're in the menu. That's right. That's right. And honestly, I look at the the physicians that I know, and I see some of the most idealistic and moral and giving and ethical people that I've ever met. And I, I always think like, these are the people <laughs> that we want empowered with this information to be making new decisions, to be building the systems. If we, if we, if we're not careful to bring that as much education and as much like encouragement and empowerment and equipping as possible, I'm, I'm a little concerned who's going to be steering the ship. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so when, when the suits kind of determine uh, uh, healthcare policy, it, it, there's, there's a challenge, right? But I think that a part of this kind of ethos in medicine of, of being you know, purely altruistic and, and wanting to be divorced from the, the, the finances, it's, it's, it's been a hamstring for many of us. And I'll tell you that right. 
as 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 we interview, as I interview uh, applicants that want to start a paying job in private practice, there's a surprisingly high number that 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 seems afraid to discuss compensation. Yeah. They're usually female, but they're it's this kind of a dirty thing where they they prefer to ask about vacation time right. compared to negotiating on 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 the incentives. Right. Like base salary, track to partnership, partnership buy-in, et cetera. And so it's been to the betterment of the system and, and to large organizations that we're afraid to discuss the finances around healthcare. Yeah. And that's why I'm always going to be beating this drum of like breaking down the walls of it's, it doesn't need to be scary. You can, you can do this. If you're smart enough to go through med school, then this stuff is really easy, actually. But sure. being able to really grab a hold of it and make it work for you is so powerful and will pay you dividends your entire life. Right. And it's fun, right? Because That's right. <laughs> you want to be in control of your own fate and destiny. And you've, right. you've worked incredibly hard for, for, you know, a decade or more. Uh, right. And you want to kind of now be able to determine what's next and, and what is your path to career prosperity, not just in the practice of medicine, but in, in, in how you take care of your families and, and, and getting independent from the debt that you likely incurred while you were in school. That's right. So let's transition now as well, Day, and tell us a little bit about your current practice and the clinical responsibilities you have as director of outcomes and what does that mean and you talked about like doing dinners to to build the business of your pain practice i'm really interested to hear how that's going sure so i'm at alliance spine and pain it's a large interventional pain practice and the value of our size is that we can uh, truly offer comprehensive pain management by doing the the non-revenue generating things that just makes good medicine right so we focus on educating our patients on exactly what their disease pathology is we employed a wide range of treatment tools that includes pain psychology, physical therapy, aqua therapy, spine interventions, and medications when needed. So a part of what I have helped to do is to carefully and intentionally track how we prescribe opioids, what are the patterns across the practice, how do we risk stratify patients that are appropriate for opioid therapy and the ones that are not. I think that a large part of what we also have to do is demonstrate value to the system by showing how effective our procedures are, right? So if we're gonna do a series of epidurals on someone, we need to make sure that that they actually get the relief that they were hoping to get out of it. Uh, and that if they don't, we know what the next step will be. The One of the, the large consumers of healthcare dollars within the pain space, are it's back surgery, right? And, and, and we see so many folks come out of surgery with uh, persistent pain and disability. And so the, the goal is to get them to get away from the knife and, uh, and, and resume some kind of functional mobility and activity. And, and so that's a part of what I think about uh, on a day-to-day basis. My job though, I'm, I'm, I'm clinical five days a week. So uh, I'm in the office around uh, eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, see, I do procedures from eight to roughly 12, 30, one o'clock. And then I see clinic patients from uh, one o'clock until about 4 p.m. Once to twice a week, I'll um, drive out to go meet with uh, referring practice. And this is one of the skills that I did not learn in residency and fellowship. Uh, and this is more of a B-school thing uh, in that I'll, I'll, one of the challenges of growing a business and, a, and, a, and a, a, a medical business is understanding how to speak to the audiences. And we were, we've got multiple audiences here. The, the more challenging one is speaking to peers who um, are professionals themselves but you do not want to seem condescending. You want to be appreciative of their referral. You, you may know that there's a dynamic in which they're sending their patients to someone else, and you want to be respectful of that while you demonstrate value to them and, and, and kind of steer them to 
to give you a try. And so the communication lines of being able to, to educate them on exactly what you do and how well you do it is, is tremendously important. On the flip side, being able to communicate uh, to patients in a matter that's, re the matter that's reassuring, that's it's educating, but also you're not doing medical speak too much. Mm -hmm. In the age of social media being so rampant and Google reviews, it just takes a couple uh, really engaged patients to, to say something about you and it'll stymie your growth. And yeah. so, um, so it's, it's, it's a lot of that kind of shaking hands and kissing babies mm -hmm. that's, that's important to growing a practice. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, maybe you could do a case study on like, this is a, a practice, maybe it's like a family practice doc or whoever the referring physicians are, ortho, who, who would be interested in sending you business. Take me to your strategy. Like, how do I figure out what they want? How do I communicate that to them in a way that they're going to receive? And then that's going to translate into a reciprocally beneficial arrangement. Sure. So I think um, the referral that I covet the most are from, uh, from spine surgeons, right? Uh, so uh, simply because we work so well uh, together in, in the symbiosis of it. Uh, for a spine surgeon to be able to do a, a, a back surgery, the patient must have first exhausted conservative measures. And that's where I come in. So I'm the conservative measures part. If I do my job well, uh, the, the trick here is that the surgeon will not get the business from me. Um, however, the point of the system, though, is to ensure that the right patient get undergoes surgery because he or she, surgeon, does not want to operate on, the, on, on someone who's going to have a poor outcome because they hadn't properly done the conservative things. So my calculation is, okay, I first go into the, to the meeting knowing uh, where they send their referrals currently and if I'm getting referrals from them. If, I, if, it's, a, if it's a new referral source, uh, I'm, I've prepped where they went to school, I'm looking to find common interests and or, or some commonality in training. If they went to Emory like I did, I'll mention that I went to Emory to kind of get them shaking their head and smiling at me. And then maybe name drop a professor or two that we can have some common, or make a joke about them uh, to get some some kind of, uh, to get them relaxed around me. Then um, I, I'm proud of where I trained. I'm proud that I went to Harvard and Emory, but I'm in I'm in Georgia and I'm in, I'm in suburban, uh, a little rural Georgia sometimes, uh, and it can be off-putting. If I come in as the Harvard guy that pretends to know more than, than, than the community doctors there. And so a part of the delicate dance is, kind, is, is playing up to what I, I know they need to hear from me, which is that I, I'm, I'm well-trained, I'm board-certified, and I'll be able to treat their patients with caring uh, and, and compassion, that I'll get my notes back to them in a, in, in, in a quick expeditious manner uh, and I have open communication lines, but then the biggest thing would be access to my schedule. So if they send me a referral, I will personally get them in within a week. If I, if you can say that it helps that physician because as they're sitting with the patient that, that needs to be seen, they don't want to have to refer them and wait for three months for their next specialist appointment. And so I'll often leave my cell phone. Uh, I encourage them to text me and that kind of moves the scale to being a more accessible doctor for him. I, I often say, look, if you have a curbside that you want to just ask, shoot me a text, give me a call, no need to send a referral over. I'll happy to kind of guide you through how to prescribe if you need to prescribe medications for someone and tell you what's safe and what's not safe. And I found that that, that strategy is, is quite helpful um, uh, most of the time. Makes sense. So I'm sure there's people out there listening, young pain docs who are a year or two into a practice and they think, this is brilliant. I would love to be able to add value to my practice by building these referral relationships, bringing in new patients. How the heck do you get a meeting? 
Like, because this is something that is definitely not covered in residency. Like, sure. are you cold calling? Are you knocking on doors? Do you show up with donuts on a Monday? Are you yeah. on social media? What, what, what are you doing to, to get in front of these spine surgeons? So the gatekeepers, the receptionist, you got to be nice to them. So uh, I, in my practice, I have a, I have a marketing rep who will go out with, um, with donuts. Uh, they'll play for Chick-fil-A uh, lunches and he'll, um, and he'll just butter up the front desk folks and get them to let us know when that doctor's calendar is open for us to be in there for a breakfast or, or a lunchtime uh, meeting. The other thing would be just trying to find a way to meet them where they are. So it could be going to the conferences that, you know, like the spine conferences for surgeons. I'll go to those conferences and meetings as well locally to be able to interact with the, the surgeons there. Awesome. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and you mentioned one other thing that I want to touch on before we move on, and it's the, the social element with like the, you know, patients leaving reviews on Google sure. or like managing, like somebody now can like link to you on Twitter and say, Hey, at, you know, doctors Wade, like, why weren't you there when I came to my appointment yesterday? Like, you know, what, and just put you on blast. And there's never been this degree of transparency or giving a huge platform to potentially like, you know, it's only going to be that like 3% of people who are just like just that person. I mean, in many cases, I should say, uh, who's, who's going to give you the bad publicity where maybe if you do a great job for 95% of folks, they don't leave you a five-star review. So how do you manage this in your practice to be able to do damage control, be like receptive and be compassionate, but, but not, uh, you know, and just deal with all of that. It's a very volatile potential situation. It's tough. And it's really tough for pain because incentives are not always aligned, right? Right. Um, what that patient came in expecting to get may not be the best thing for them. And I might be the person to tell them that they can't get what they wanted. And that's oftentimes Percocet, right? And so, so it's not uncommon for a patient to leave a pain practice disgruntled and angry, uh, but the, the advice that they received was, was the best advice for them, for society, for a healthcare system. And so there's a level of, of sitting down and talking slowly and explaining why the risks outweigh the benefit for, for, a ther for one therapy or the other. And then you just gotta pray they don't they don't get angry enough to go ahead and leave a bad review about you. Because once the review's out there, you're kind of stuck with having to respond. And I haven't quite figured out if I should be responding to bad reviews or yeah. if you kind of stay quiet about it and hope like there's enough good ones to come afterwards. But of course, you'll have your all stars. You know the folks that 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 bring you cookies and donuts because they're so happy about your your service. And you yeah. you'll ask encourage them to, to write reviews as well. Uh, and, and hopefully it bounces out where it's only about 3% bad and 90, 97% good. But it's, it's, it's certainly a challenge, especially uh, in, the, in the pain space. I mentioned Percocet. Uh, uh, we're, we're in the front lines of this opioid crisis. Uh, this is a uniquely American problem. Uh, Vicodin is the number one prescribed medication uh, for maybe 16 years running. Uh, number oh, two is I did not know that statistic. That's incredible. Oh, oh yeah. Lysinopril is number two, Sintoids number three. The, the U.S. is 5% of the world population, like 4.8%. We consume 87% of all oxycodone and 99% of all hydrocodone. Uh, so, oh yeah, in the time we have this chat, there's going to be two overdose deaths. Uh, so the, the data is staggering um, and wow. we're in the front line of this epidemic. There's this responsibility of making sure that, that you treat people with compassion, empathy, and fairness, but, but also knowing the, uh, the, the kind of social context of narcotics and, and every script that you prescribe is a script that could potentially be misused, yeah. abused, or, or, or diverted. Uh, and so there's, there's that element to things as well. 
Yeah. And I know one of the things when we discussed earlier, that one of the ways that you use your expertise in the opioid uh, conversation specifically is in the expert witnessing capacity to weigh in clinically on whether or not a procedure is appropriate. And you t- can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of what it means to be an expert witness, what it means to be able to make those types of assessments, and what is the context for that, that to happen? Sure. Um, so I think I was a little intentional about expert witness work when I was in fellowship. Um, I, had a, I have a great mentor. He still is a mentor of mine, uh, Jason Young at, at Brigham and Women's. And uh, I know he was doing expert work. And I figured that I need to kind of carve out something that I knew a lot about. And it could be urine drug screens. It could be uh, a particular procedure, spinal cord stimulation. Mine was uh, opioid data, right? So I did a grand rounds presentation and fellowship on the opioid crisis. And the, 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 the numbers I quoted you just now, I, I, I researched them. And I kind of kept track of them over the course of the last uh, four years since I left uh, uh, Boston. And began to give talks locally on opioids and the crisis and how to appropriately prescribe and avoid prosecution. So I was hosting retreats for hospital systems uh, to speak with primary care doctors about prescribing practices, et cetera. And what my first time doing it, the the feds called me. So the U.S. Attorney Office uh, saw my profile uh, on on our website and maybe saw that I've been giving talks on, on the topic and reached out. And what it means is I'm going to be a subject matter expert in, in the sense of as they're beginning to put together a case, whether it's prosecution or defense, they need to, to better understand the context of medicine. What are the details around what most physicians will do? Uh, what are the bounds of usual practice? And help them to understand how far outside the bounds uh, a physician is or how to defend someone who's accused of being outside the bounds and say that this is actually one of the exceptions. Uh, uh, cases that's allowed to have this unusual appearing prescription, but it's it's actually within within the context of, of, of good medicine. So it's it's a relatively lucrative ancillary income. Uh, I'll give you some hard numbers since I think your 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 your, your listeners would, would care to know. I charge between five and eight hundred dollars an hour. If 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 a case goes to trial, you actually get between twenty five and forty five hours of work, and that includes reviewing uh, case files. Um, summarizing a, a report that details uh, the elements that are concerning, uh, and then being prepared to go testify uh, in court, uh, understand, uh, and kind of face the, 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 the opposing counsel and, and, and their challenges to whatever your opinion is. So having, um, being ready for that kind of debate is, is, is also a good skill to have. Yeah. Take me to the moment of your first cross-examination. <laughs> so I'll tell you this. I have not had to be cross-examined Okay. Yet. They, they, uh, I've done, I've done several of these cases, but it ends up being a battle of the penmanship, right? So, yeah. their expert submits a report, I submit a report, okay. and then depending on how compelling uh, the report is and the and the overall case, they'll figure out a way to settle outside of court. Uh, and so, uh, so, so it sometimes matters like, what, what are your credentials? Whose expert is better? You know, right. like who's more credible on this topic? Uh, and so, I've had to write reports to kind of establish my credibility and, and also poke holes in the opposing uh, opinion, both because of the, maybe the practice that that, that, that expert's coming from, the, the location, the, the patient population that that, that expert's used to, mm-hmm. and seeing why it's not a good fit for the case that we're looking at currently. I'll likely be in court uh, in January, though, in, in two months. Uh, this case is certainly going to go to trial, and uh, I'm getting ready for that. Okay. That's, uh, so have you, done, have you been in court before? 
I have, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's this, I think society in general still has a whole lot of respect for doctors. And so uh, uh, usually folks will kind of like prepare you for the fact that they're about to, you know, stab you. So you, they're, 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 all, they're always like docking your opinion. You know, we know this is, yeah. this, this may sound odd, but do you think it's never really aggressive? Um, yeah. And the circles are small. So, so I may be on, on, on the prosecution side in this case, and then that defense counsel may hire me for a defense case three months later. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's not as acrimonious as it sounds. Okay. So for somebody out there who thinks, you know what, I'm really intrigued by the idea of expert witnessing. Obviously, Zwade, for you, you've, you did all the research, you were doing the talks, and then the opportunities found you. What about somebody who's interested in branching out? They like the idea of ancillary income. They like the idea of being an expert, being in the courtroom, going through all that. How, how, would, somebody, how would you recommend somebody go about finding an opportunity like that? Yeah, I think networking with, um, with, with lawyers uh, would be the, the easiest place to begin uh, with the workers' compensation boards, uh, with um, with disability uh, practices, the docs that do uh, disability ratings and impairments for, for for employees who have any kind of health challenge. Often they'll need to have a physician do an independent medical evaluation. It's it's a start to get into an expert role uh, where you'll you'll do you'll provide an unbiased opinion of their healthcare uh, kind of um, uh, advice over the course of some period of time, and you'll render an objective opinion. Uh, and that's that gets your name out there in the, in the physician circles, uh, okay. and the, the legal circles, sorry. And then with that, you can kind of parlay into being an expert on, on, on a bigger case. Okay. Can you maybe give us one or two examples of a case you've worked on recently and sort of whether it was for prosecution or defense and how you interacted with it and, and what the verdict was? Sure. Um, so uh, George is, is in the hot seat for, for opioids and, and the epidemic. Uh, and we had a doctor in Savannah, Georgia, a family medicine doctor. Uh, he was the number one prescriber of OxyContin on the, uh, in, the in the Southeast. Um, and he routinely prescribed uh, OxyContin, Percocet, Xanax, and Soma in combination. Uh, he prescribes the highest dose of each medication to the patients which means that there's a street value component to what he's giving them. Um, patients traveled great distances to see him. Uh, he charged cash for scripts. It was absolutely egregious and easy for me to agree to be an expert uh, on, the, on the, the prosecution side of this case. Um, I thought that it was going to be hard for them to find an expert to the defense side to defend his actions, and it was hard. Uh, he didn't have a, an expert uh, submit the defense. Uh, and I thought that there was going to be a deal where he was uh, going to not go to full trial. Uh, the challenge for him was that he was older. And uh, if, he, if he settled for it, they, they may have offered him uh, maybe a 10 years in, in prison. Uh, and by that, he, would have, he would probably die in jail. And so he, he had no choice but to go ahead and, and go, to, go to trial. Mm -hmm. And he was convicted um, uh, earlier this month uh, of, on, 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 I think, 12 counts of uh, prescribing recklessly and so wow. so uh so this uh he hasn't had the sentencing part yet now um i'll I, I mentioned you know that he was number one prescriber and and that case was a little bit easier to kind of see the folly and where things went awry um but i made the mistake of telling you that he was number one prescriber as if that matters right because on the other side you have a lot of doctors who were being prosecuted because of big data Okay. 
what does it mean to be the number one prescriber? Well, someone has to be number one. And does that necessarily portend bad behavior? It does not. Uh, and what kind of practice is it? Where, where is that doctor? Are they seeing a lot of oncology patients? Are there, is there access to pain practices within 25 square miles of where the doctor is practicing? And so I've been on the other side of a defense case in which I thought that um, the, 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 the physician in this case was not benefiting financially from the scripts. She was running a, a, a small family medicine office where about 13% of her patients were getting pain uh, medications, principally because there were a lot of prosecutions of pain practices within a 10 square mile radius, and those got shut down. So she's got an influx of patients coming in saying, hey doc, I know you do my hypertension, but I need my Percocets as well. She was the only provider for Medicaid services within a 50 square mile radius. And with Medicaid, they don't pay for physical therapy. They don't pay for MRIs. You can't do the usual and customary workup to, to diagnose things the way you would if, you, if you're in a well-resourced area. And so the red flags in her case can be explained if you look at the circumstances. And yet, and, and yet I think it's the kind of case where the board, the medical board in, in, in her town did not take away her license. They, they, they gave her, uh, they thought she had to get ed educated better on uh, opioid prescribing, complete some CMEs, and they limited the amount of opioids that she could prescribe, but, it, but she still can prescribe. But yet, the U.S. attorneys there are going after her for a criminal prosecution with jail time. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that's unfortunate there. So, so I, it, this is a, to understand this, this, this problem, you have to hold two opposing views in your head at the same time and figure out the nuance of it. This is a real epidemic. People are dying every hour. Uh, and as, as a pain provider, you, we're in the front line of giving access to these controlled substances. On the other hand, there cannot be an over-reliance on big data when this is a nuanced issue, right? And so when, some, when, when the papers report that this doctor prescribed, you know, 32,000 milligrams of oxycodone, what does that actually mean? That means you're seeing 30 patients a day, five days a week for six months. That's not a big number, okay? So you can sensationalize headlines and totally miss the fact that these are, uh, that, that, that's, that there's doctors trying to just do right by patients and they get caught up in the crossfire. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thanks for sharing that, Zwade. You're welcome. So I wanna wrap up uh, with the topic that initially connected us and I'm really interested to hear about doc to doc that's DOC number two DOC, which is your physician lending endeavor. So tell us about the genesis of this idea and how things are going and what it's all about. Sure. So I'm happy to do it. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so when I moved from Emory to go to, to Boston for a residency, I needed to, to get $14,000. Um, it was first last month's rent uh, deposit as well. And I didn't have it. Uh, single parent home, as, as you know, uh, and just didn't have 14 grand lying around. So I needed to borrow the money. Well, I also had above average student loan debt. Um, I had a FICO score that was sub 700. And the banks look at my profile and I look high risk on paper to them. And so uh, the rate that I was given for that loan was north of 15%. Oh. Um, yeah. And so about 12% of my peers 
borrow money uh, for transition. Now, there's a much larger proportion of us that'll swipe our credit cards during residency and fellowship as life happens, right? You know, there's the birth of kids, you're making uh, a, a modest income, uh, working a lot of long hours, but you just are not making enough money to make ends meet sometimes. And so you leverage debt uh, to kind of live. Um, and, and, and because of the way the traditional credit system is set up, we're penalized for, for, for the toll that, that it takes to kind of become a doctor while in training. Uh, my co-founder, Kenton Allen, and I met at, at Brigham and Women's, and, and we, he had a very similar experience to mine. Uh, and we decided to, to pool a, a, a fund together with physician investors that would underwrite risk for doctors prospectively. So instead of relying solely on FICO score and debt to income ratios, we care more about where you're headed in your career. So we look at your specialty, where you went to school, any honors in medical school that, that you achieved. Uh, if you're a medical student, what your board scores were, we wanna predict you practicing medicine and staying in medicine and using that to get our interest rates lower than the marketplace. We've been quite successful at doing that to date. Um, we're beating SoFi and Ernest uh, by about 180 basis points on average. We've deployed uh, about half a million dollars to date in loans since we started giving out loans 12 weeks ago. Uh, and um, our borrower experience is, is, is good. Borrowers speak to a doctor when they, when they contact us. And uh, we're able to kind of walk them through how to borrow, when not to borrow. Uh, we'll, we'll advise folks not to take out debt if they don't have to take out the debt. And then um, we charge no prepayment penalties because we expect that they're going to be earning you know, more at some finite period of time in the future. And so they can zero their debt out without any prepayment penalties uh, from us. And so it's it's been great to kind of create this ecosystem of doctors helping doctors. And, and we're, we're really proud of it. And some of the some some of the, the most fun I've had in the last tw uh, 12 weeks has been kind of hearing the borrower stories of why they want to need to borrow money. It's, it's, it's heart wrenching. And it's also like just really fun to understand the human condition and what doctors go through to actually get to where they need to be. Totally. And I love this theme for you of using uh, a nuanced perspective to take what has previously been handled poorly by big data and saying, if we are prospective rather than retrospective, which is exactly what you just described for the opioid situation, then we can determine that, well, actually the cohort of people who graduated from medical school and matched to an anesthesia residency across the country, like, of course they made no money. And of course they have a, like a not that great credit score. But if you add another layer of filtering, you can see like these are the, among the lowest credit risk people probably in all of society. And they're actually a pretty good bet in that way. You were way more articulate than I was. And oh, that's well, spot on <laughs> and perfect. So tell me about you share, sort of coming up with this idea and then sharing the idea with a couple of friends and getting investors. How did that process go for you? Yeah. So, uh, so Kenton and I kind of um, talked about it for, for some time. Uh, and then uh, this is a highly regulated industry. So it's banking, right. it's money, it's lending. Uh, and so to get to the point where we could actually give loans, you need to get a state-by-state -state lending process. Well, we pitched our idea to a, to a bank out of Wisconsin um, and spoke to their board, and they decided to pick us up, which gets us a bank that's behind origination of our loans. So it's mm -hmm. our funds, but we get access to all 50 states, right? Um, and so uh, we were able to cement that deal uh, after 12 months after we initially got the yes from them with all the legal diligence, et cetera. Um, and the other part of this was um, getting our friends, uh, mentors, and and, uh, and faculty members to uh, stress test the idea. So we actually pitched the first iteration of the concept 
at the ASA two years ago um, to uh, a cohort of anesthesiologists. Like we had small, like kind of shark tank pit sessions set up where, you know, there were, there were our team and, and, and six to seven anesthesiologists. And we said, hey, we want to kind of run a concept by you guys. Look for our blind spots. Tell us what's missing. What are we not seeing here? Uh, and we came out of that pit session looking for ideas and kind of thoughtfulness around how to make this a real business with offers for investment. And, uh, and that's how we knew we were onto something real. And then from there, the, the word kind of spread. It's, it's good to have rich friends. Uh, we're, we're, we're in a profession <laughs> in which there's a lot of disposable income. And so, um, so a lot of our friends uh, who, who believe in the concept and believe in helping, helping peers wrote us checks. Awesome. So for anybody listening out there, anesthesiasuccess.com slash 33. We're going to link to all this good information in the show notes. We're going to link to Dr. Doc. And uh, so Swade, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, a typical borrower profile for some of the money that you've lent thus far. Like, are you finding that they all kind of look the same or there's a couple specific situations where you can really most impactfully engage? Oh, uh, they don't look the same at all. Uh, it's, it's so varied and wide. Let me, so I'll tell you, we lend from fourth year medical students who've matched to in-practice physicians. Thus far, most of our borrowers have been in-practice physicians. Hmm. Uh, and it can be for reasons like they're a 1099 contractor and got hit with a tax bill that they didn't expect. And so they're having a, uh, uh, to kind of get the tax bill taken care of. For our in-training uh, physicians, there's been quite a bit of relocation costs. Like, you know, we had a borrower out of, out of New York who needed to move uh, to California and, um, and needed to, to cover her expenses. Uh, over the course of the conversation, I, uh, we figured out that she was taking her board exams pretty soon after she moved to California. And after we gave her the loan, she got a board prep packet from her doctor doc friends just to say, uh, thank you for the business and, and we're here looking out for you. But they're, they're, they're borrowers. So the, the one kind of exotic borrower that we've had is someone who came in to borrow for, for cryo egg preservation, cryopreservation, uh, because... Uh, Early in a neurosurgery residency, uh, we'll graduate several, several years from now and wanted to preserve fertility. And the cost of freezing eggs is extraordinarily expensive. It's yeah. uh, above $30,000. And that's important to her and her family. And so, um, so we're issuing a loan for that as well. So it, it runs the gamut. And, and there's, a, there's a level of shame that, I, that I'm seeing uh, for doctors that apply for our loans. And, and they, it's a, they apply in secret, right? And, and a part of what we're trying to do is to destigmatize the need. It's, it's not good to borrow unnecessarily, but when there's a need uh, to cover life's expenses, I think um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we, we have to be supportive of our, of our peers in, in, that, in that sense. And so we're, we're kind of, we're, it's a confidential process, but we want to ensure that folks know that, that there are others that have lived through it. I personally have, I'm on the other side of it now, and, and, uh, and we'll help them get there too. Wow, that is incredible. So what are the what are your goals for the business? What would you like to see happen with it in the next couple of years? I mean, it seems like the sky's the limit. <laughs> it is. I, get, so I know personally so many people who I'm like, they need this. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So um so we have uh, a number of relationships with with different schools and uh, and programs. We're talking to, to uh, financial aid advisors at, at medical schools and also to some wealth uh, wealth wealth managers as well. And we're seeing a lot of folks with credit high credit card debt. Uh, at you know the twenties for interest rate uh, APRs and and we're able to refi those goals though I think what we'd like to do is 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 give access to any doctor who needs to access capital that should do so at a fair rate 
and by a fair rate, it should be competitive because I don't want to see us continue to be penalized for the 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 time it takes to become a physician into this noble profession. Uh, we're a tough population to feel sorry for, uh, and we're not looking for sympathy, you know. But um, I think it's it's lost in folks the kind of toll it takes, not just on your life, but but on your financial health. Yeah. And uh, and if you and if you if you have a family, it's even more challenging. And so. Uh, we're here to be supportive. Um, I think as as the company grows, you want to be able uh, to, uh, to to help empower doctors to to uh, to understand more about contracts and yeah. and 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 student loan refinancing. Um, we want to be able to to fund missions uh, internationally. My co-founder spent a lot of time in Africa with his wife uh, uh, doing uh, medical mission work. Uh, I travel once a year for it, and a lot of our a lot of our team they're highly motivated about um, getting care to disadvantaged parts of the world. That's a large part of what motivates us as well. Awesome. That's such an exciting vision. I can't wait to see uh, how you guys continue to grow and thrive into the future, hopefully. Thank you, Justin. So thank you for your time as well today. I want to close it up with this last question. You're a very accomplished physician, entrepreneur. You've got a lot going on. You're doing a lot of great work. I'm curious, uh, as you look at all the things you're doing, maybe zoom in on one experience or one endeavor that you're really proud of and take us to that moment when you kind of had this realization of what I'm doing right now, the work that I'm doing, whether it's with a patient or with a, you talk to that one borrower who was like crying on the phone, thanking you for that. Like take me to that moment when you said, you know what, I'm really, I'm proud of this. I'm so glad I'm doing it. And this has all been worth it. It's a tough question. Uh, it's an awesome question because I have to reflect on the, 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 the many times I've felt good about what I'm doing and it happens often. I'm in a profession in which you get to impact lives a lot. Um, and it's not often that you get to look up and think about it as, as being an impactful uh, uh, experience. I'll tell you, so I thought through this a little and I was in Boston during the uh, Boston Marathon bombings. And so I was a part of the care team at Brigham for that. And that was incredible from, from, from a clinician perspective and being able to see the kind of hope that folks that were losing limbs still had for, for their, 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 their life's outcome, right? I was also there when a physician was shot in the hospital and he was uh, a beloved uh, doctor who had done residency there, done, did medical school there and, and was unstaffed there. And then we cared for him uh, in his final hours and he did pass away. And, and so being a part of that experience and thinking about you know, the, the human condition, the fragility of life and what we do was, was, was incredible. Uh, and and that was, that's a bit of a dark example to the question. But in my, I think in my day job, I had a patient who was, a, he's a pastor and had a car accident and crushed both of his legs uh, uh, in the accident and, and had several surgeries in the legs to kind of get that, to regain the ability to, to walk and stand. And he, he can stand and walk, but he just, just couldn't stand at the pulpit for an hour sermon, right? He ended up coming to see me and we, I did uh, a procedure for him. It's called a spinal cord stimulator kind of like a pacemaker for the spine. And I remember that uh, we got his insurance to approve the procedure close to the end of the year. And that, that it was going to expire within days. And so we had to get it done before January 1 of the following year. And it, made, it meant that my staff had to stay late that evening. So he came late, stayed late. And people tend to be grumpy at 4 or 4.30 yeah. when you start a case at that time. It's, 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 not, it's not fun. Um, and the case went well. And he woke up. Uh, and his wife and son were there to get him. Uh, and this is now, it's now nighttime. Uh, and he stood up and turned the simulator on and started to cry 
and his wife started to cry and they started to thank me. Uh, and we started to thank the staff that were there and everyone started to cry. And it's just, it's around Christmas time. And, and I left there like thinking to myself, like if every experience was like this, like it's, it, I was so moved. I had goosebumps as it happened. And, and, and I think about it now, I still, I remember his face and, and his wife's face and, and, and the experience of feeling as though I had a meaningful interaction that's gonna improve this guy's quality of life for not just him, but for his wife and their two kids. Uh, and I see him now every year, uh, once a year, and he brings uh, a, a cake for me from his latest trip for his uh, for his minist- ministerial uh, travel, and uh, it's 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 one of the most impactful uh, experiences I've had. Wow, that is incredible. I'm getting a little misty here just hearing the story. <laughs> I can't I can't imagine just being there. It must have been really special. It w- it was incredible. Well. Thank you very much for sharing that story. And Dr. Zwade Marshall, thank you for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.